Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey there, and a big hello. Welcome into Downtown, the podcast, episode number 296. Rich Kimball here with you. Downtown brought to you every week by Renewal by Anderson, your trusted window and door replacement expert. Call them in Maine at 207-275-6622 or visit RenewalByAnderson.com, the better way to a better window. We've got a pair of music guests on the podcast this week. A little bit later on, Peter Lewis, founding member of the San Francisco band Moby Grape. Uh, We'll talk about their story and also uh, some of his new music as well. But up first, a country music legend, been making great music for nearly 50 years now. Started as a record company promo man, became friends with Elvis when he first uh, set out and relocated in Memphis, Tennessee. Elvis ended up uh, jump-starting his music career by buying him a tour bus. <laughs> Details of that story, and we talk about some new music as well with the great T.G. Shepard here on Downtown. T.G. Shepard here, Rich. How you doing? I am doing just great. How are you this morning? Well, you know, I'm just having my second cup of coffee, and uh, sun, the sun finally came out in Nashville. It snowed last night, but nothing stuck. But I'm ready for springtime, I can tell you that. Well, we don't, we're don't. we in Maine, and we have virtually no snow, so you can send a little of that our way. We'll take it. No, no problem. I'll get it off to you today. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, well, I have to tell you a, a quick story. The first song I ever played as a DJ on the radio was Devil in the Bottle back in 1975. Oh, my God. You're, you're telling how old you are now. <laughs> I was very young. I, was, I think I was three at the time. I was a, <laughs> I was a prodigy. And I actually interviewed you. It's been a while. Uh, I think I, I interviewed you when, you when you first signed with Warner Brothers. You know what? I remembered, I remembered the name. I think the, <laughs> the same name we're going under, or is it? Oh, I, I, it's mine. It's the one my mama gave me, so I've kept it all these years. Well, it rang a bell when I looked at it that <laughs> way. I, I have I have had a conversation with you before. So. Been, been a long time, yeah. but uh, so, so great to have new music from you. You and uh, you and Kelly sound so great together. Uh, can you tell us how you came to record? You're still the one. Well, Kelly and I had uh, we were in Las Vegas and Shania was performing there about a year and a half ago and. We'd been thinking about doing a duet album, so we went to her show, and and the show was fantastic. And afterwards, we caught ourselves humming, "You're still the one" around the house in the car or whatever. So about that time, we thought about maybe doing another duet album. We'd done one iconic duets years ago. Mm. So Kelly said, "Why don't we make a duet out of the Shania Twain song? It really lends itself to it. It's very romantic." And uh, so we, we got in the studio, and it just, voila, it just kind of happened. And um, we released it as our new single, the first single off of the album that drops in April. And uh, had a lot of fun doing it. Well, and it, it sounds so great, and it's one of those, and you've always had such a great ear for good songs and, and how to make them even better. But you hear that as a duet, and you think, well, yeah, that, that song was born to be a duet. You know, there are so many great songs done by single artists that would make great duets. You know, another song on the album that we did 
was a remake of the Kenny Rogers hit Morning Desire. Oh, wow. We, we went in and did that. And man, I, you know, I can almost feel the steam off of the, uh, (laughs) recording studio. Um, but no, it, it, it just kind of worked, but yeah, I've always loved great songs that hit you in the heart, especially if you're a romantic and I am, I'm married to a wonderful lady and, and I, I, I'm blessed to be able to call her my wife. Well, and I was thinking back on uh, earlier in your career, and you have that ability that I think that the great singers all have, that you can take a song that's iconic, Solitary Man, Happy Together, Fooled Around and Fell in Love, and all of a sudden it becomes a T.G. Shepherd song. Wow, what a compliment. Wow, man. <laughs> Thank you, Rich. Uh, I don't know. I- you know, I, I always love those songs you just mentioned. So when I had a chance to record them, you know, I, I think it's important for an artist to always try to make a song their own, although it might not be their song originally. And uh, I, I have been fortunate to pick some, some songs that I did remake song that I've always been pleased with. Well, I, I want to go back a little bit. For anybody who doesn't know uh, the backstory, you were working as a, a promo man at RCA Records along the way when you decided to to start recording and yeah, well you made a you made a pretty important friend in the business and uh, in a label made at RCA right Yeah gosh I mean I met Elvis when I was 15 and we became instant friends and stayed friends until the day he passed and you know I, w- I was a promo guy with RCA at the time and he was my artist I was touring with him uh, later on, after I met him when I was a kid, we got a chance to work together at the record company, and what a great friendship! I mean, he really kind of kind of believed in me in the beginning. Bought me my first tour bus, <laughs> and gave it to me as a gift. Somebody the other day asked me, said, "Is the tour bus the greatest gift that Elvis gave you?" And I said, "No, the bus was the catalyst for the great gift he gave me. Was the gift of confidence because." believed in me enough to buy me a gift like that to kind of get me started i couldn't let it down it made me work harder and it made me more confident but that was the greatest gift but what a what a great friend to have wow he was incredible and you knew from a a pretty early age that you wanted to be involved in the music business what were you 14 or 15 when you you set off for memphis yeah i was a runaway at 15 hitchhiked to memphis when when i met elvis and um I don't know. My dad was strict. He didn't want music in the house. He was uh, one of those guys that uh, wanted me to, you know, work and not do music. But I knew what I wanted to do with my life. So I had to leave to be able to to try to make it. And uh, so I, I, I went set out on this journey that I'm still on, all, you know, all these years later. And what a, what a trip it's been. I've, I've been very blessed and honored to do what I do for a living. We're talking with T.G. Shepard here on Downtown. Well, you, uh, as a promo man, you tried to get all kinds of people and all kinds of labels to record this song that you just knew was a hit, and it's hard to believe now all these years later that nobody wanted Devil in the Bottle. You know, another great story, because I love telling stories. I I remember the day that I went to my mailbox. I, I had pushed it to every label and every artist. I went to my mailbox to pick up my Billboard magazine to see it at number one, okay? (laughs) And I reached into the mailbox, uh, Rich, and there it was, number one in Billboard. But in that same mailbox was a small package 
that had been returned to me from a major recording label that said, we're sorry at this time, we do not feel that this is a commercial record. So in one hand, you're number one, and in the other hand, you've got a rejection letter with the same song. So I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you believe strong enough in what you're doing, stick with it, because hopefully you'll get your shot. Well, and you not only got your shot, but you made the most of it. I, mean, I talked about you signing with Warner Brothers Records, and you'd been very successful before that. But then uh, a string of hits, uh, hits that few have matched in the history of country music. Uh, was it uh, nine, ten consecutive number one songs? I don't know how many top tens in a row. Uh, play Airplay, not just on country stations, but crossing over to the pop charts, too, with songs like uh, I Loved Them Everyone and Party Time and uh, Only One You. And, I mean, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing a T.G. Shepherd song on the radio. And, and what was great is... They all sounded different. You know, sometimes people will have a sound, but uh, you you made each song an individual effort. And I think that's why they've endured so long. And I'm just, I'm coming in this morning. I was listening to Willie's Roadhouse on <laughs> Sirius XM and, uh, and and heard heard Party Time. And I went, man, that's that sounds as great now as when I took it out of the uh, package on a Tuesday morning back in 81. Well, you know, we've been I've been very fortunate. I always felt if I could have one or two number ones. I never dreamed that we would have twenty one total number ones and thirty seven top ten. Mm-hmm. Um I, I wow. Uh I still have to pinch myself every day. I mean, wow, that's I still can't believe it. And I I know you've talked about it, but what was it like recording with Clint Eastwood? Oh my gosh. Rich, I gotta tell you, he, he was the most down to earth guy that I have ever had the opportunity to even meet, uh, let alone record with. I mean, he he was no ego. I remember the day I was standing in the studio waiting for him to, to pull up. He called me. I was performing in Lake Tahoe, and he said, will you fly in tomorrow and do a duet with me? We have a new movie called Sudden Impact, and there's a catch-all phrase called Make My Day. And I said, sure. And I'm waiting in the, in the studio there in the lobby, and I expected this big entourage to pull up with 10 or 15 people. And he pulls up in a 55 Chevrolet pickup truck, <laughs> one he used in Bridges of Medicine County, the red Chevy. And he crawls out of there by himself and walks in and says, hi, I'm Plenty. So I said, I know. <laughs> and we spent six hours in the studio that day. And, Wow, it was a memory that I will never, and I will always treasure. I mean, what a what a super nice guy. Well, and you recorded a wonderful duet with a friend of our show. She was just on with us a few months ago, the great Judy Collins. Oh, she just performed in Nashville, and she dedicated a song to me sitting in the audience, and I just, wow, I melted. I mean... I mean, Judy is just one of those iconic singers that just lives on forever. And, you know, to be able to work with her and and uh, and do a duet with her was was an honor. Now, uh, your last solo album was Midnight in Memphis. Uh, you got another one in the works after the duets album comes out? Well, you know, I'm thinking about it. I, I don't know what I want to do yet, but I, I want it to be different. I, I don't know if I want to do just a solo album. Uh it will. I mean, I'm sorry. It'll be a solo album, but I, I don't. I may do a tribute to somebody. There's some mm. great out there, and I love their music. 
So I, I may I may do a tribute album to one of my favorite artists. Uh, I'm I'm just still kind of trying to figure out what I want to do. But yeah, I'll be in the studio doing a new album this next year. Now I, I always think maybe it's because it's it's when I started in radio. But that period from you know the mid '70s uh, through the end of the '80s, I look at as a golden era in country music. There was so much good music, so many different influences uh, that came in. What do you think is the state of of today's country music? I love a lot of the music of today, and then I I don't like some of it. Uh, I'm a storyteller, which I I'm, I'm, I love story songs that take me somewhere. And uh, so I, I miss those type of songs, but I, I think country music today has reached a new audience that is so exciting. I mean, I look out in my crowds and see teenagers and and twenty year olds singing our songs that they learn from their moms and dads, and it, it's just really a wonderful time for country music. It is just exploded, and uh, we can't keep up. I mean, we we're on the road each week touring, and as I say, I, I invite anybody to go to teachyshepherd dot com and pick up our tour info. Um, but no, it, it's an exciting time for country music. Uh, a lot of great new performers. I love Luke Combs, what he's doing, mm. uh, and it, I, I, I'm a big fan of Little Big Town. I love their harmonies. I mean, and then again, I love the Oaks and the Gatlins. You know, so. It, it's a great time for country music. Now, are you still doing your show on uh, the Elvis channel? No, I left Sirius XM because my wife and I are getting ready to start our new podcast. It'll be a video streaming podcast, and it'll probably start sometime late spring, early summer. And I didn't have time to do both. So hopefully I'll return to Sirius XM on Prime Country uh, sometime next year. We're, we're hopeful of that. Uh, if we have the time for it with, with our podcast coming. Well, you got so much going on. Uh, again, TG out on tour. Uh, let's see, uh, later this week, uh, Granbury, Texas, Houston, uh, then in March uh, in Wisconsin, back to Richmond, Texas, Hackberry, Louisiana, Weirsdale, Florida, a lot of dates. Check them out again at the website, tgshepherd.com. But uh, before you do anything else with Valentine's Day coming right up, make sure you get yourself a copy and listen to this wonderful duet with TG and Kelly Lang, a great version of You're Still the One. It's so good to have new TG Shepherd music out there. And, and what, a, what a fun time it's been talking with you again after all these years. Always, you know what, I want to pay you a compliment. You know, I do a lot of interviews with people, but there's very few that have mastered the art of conversation. And you, my friend, have. You're probably one of the best at what you do in our business, and I thank you. Well, I appreciate it. TG, uh, be well. Best to you and Kelly. Happy Valentine's Day to you, and we'll catch up with you down the road. Okay, take care. That's country music superstar T.G. Shepard visiting with us here on downtown we will take a little break and when we come back of moby grape up next on downtown the better way to a better window renewal by anderson are you ready to fall in love with your home again are you ready to transform your home with new windows and doors that'll stand the test of time look no further than renewal by anderson this is owner troy pearl to tell you that our signature service is designed to take you seamlessly from start to finish ensuring a stress-free experience in your window and door replacement journey at renewal by anderson we understand the importance of quality craftsmanship and unmatched expertise and here's the exciting news we're extending an exclusive offer just for you this february 
Enjoy employee pricing with $300 off each window and $600 off each door. That's right, $300 off every window you buy and $600 off every door. To schedule your free in-home, no-obligation consultation, visit us at rbagreatermain.com. That's rbagreatermain.com. The better way to a better window, renewal by Anderson. Got that dark hair falling across her shoulders There's not a man alive that wouldn't want to hold her And the way she moves, just the way she moves That's enough To keep me on a slow burn Back on downtown, a little bit of T.G. Shepard right there. Our next guest, a founding member of the San Francisco band Moby Grape. He's got some brand new music out, a solo album called Imagination. Bruce Pratt joined me in studio when we caught up with Peter Lewis here on Downtown. Man, the album is uh, so good. It comes out officially on June 16th, but I have been enjoying it so much for the last uh, few days. And and uh, the, the theme seems to be uh, what we all know as we, we get a little older, that our time here is pretty short and all we really have are the connections we make with each other. Uh, the music, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, you know, it's uh, what I do. It's just, uh, you know, and, uh, and and a lot of this was a collaboration with um, my producer, you know, which is the best work, you know, when you get and you can both get on the same trip and do music, you know. I mean, that's what Moby Grape was all about. Well, in, the, in, in the beginning, you know. And your producer, too, have been on our show several times, uh, the wonderful John D. Nicola, Oscar-winning songwriter. But it sounds like this was a really a, more of a collaboration between you two. Well, yeah, the song you just played was. And, uh, you know, the way we work is he sends me these ideas. You know, just uh, you can... I think, uh, you know, when you're trying to do something like this, it's better just to start, you know, with a with a musical idea, and then I get the musical idea from him, and uh, you know he's usually got some kind of an idea for an arrangement, which means a progression of chords, and then I'll take that and uh, try to shuffle around like in the our machines. We can nowadays what what one thing I do like about the digital. Um, revolution as far as music is concerned is being able to use your recording device like a word processor so you can it doesn't you don't have to you can try stuff out and if it doesn't work you know just go to some other possible solution for a problem as far as arranging you know so i use this idea that these ideas he sends me make them into kind of a an arrangement which means like you know you have uh a couple Verses like the Beatles had that classic middle eight where they have, they always have a, re, a repeating, you know. So you hear the hook more than once, you know. Uh, the song stuck in your head, you the, know. The song so we, we did that this this way we can do it without having to sit there together and do it from coast to coast. Where he sends me these ideas, I send the ideas back to him. What I come up with, and then 
I write some words to it, and that's the, what you just heard was just one of those. And that song we heard, part of Path of Least Resistance, I understand that was uh, inspired by some of the management issues that uh, you had with Moby Grape and the long battles to maintain ownership of not just your music, but the name. Uh, that's right. It, 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 well, I guess you could say it, it turned out to be that, you know. It, I don't, it started, uh, it might have started from some other inspiration I had, but then it became like when I got into writing the song, which has to do with the way I do it with John as I go through it, you know, like uh, I start singing something, you know, and it's trying to channel an idea or get to a, get to something in the end where you, you know, it's about something. And I guess in the end, it became about this guy that was our old manager and uh, that we got, we were in a 40-year-long litigation with, you know, the longest-running music business litigation in history. And, uh, you know, but the guy, he's, so, he's passed away. I don't want to say anything too negative because he got us together, okay? So so life is like that, you know, you you get an opportunity to play with these great musicians, which is what I, my experience at Moby Grape was I, I feel very lucky to have been playing with Skip and Jerry and Don and Bob, you know, because they were great musicians. And You're... so, you know, now I'm, the, the band is kind of, there's, you never get out of Moby Grape, <laughs> you know, but uh, we're not working anymore. I'm, getting out there and singing. I just heard Robert Plant do one of our tunes last night. I was sent a email by one of the band members, old ladies, and she said, you got to hear this. And I did the link, and it was Robert singing this song we did on our third record called It's a Beautiful Day that I didn't write. But, I, you know, we all used to inspire each other to write about what was going on in our lives right then. You know, <laughs> Moby Grape was more like, you know, like a thing that we, we were a consortium of songwriters where we all had, you know, we were willing, you know, to get together at some point in the beginning. And, uh, you know, the idea was to figure out how to play songs, the songs that we wrote better than they, the it, nobody could play those songs that we wrote better than we did. That was our bar, you know, that was, that was what we the agreement between us, you know. In the beginning, when we did our first record, um, that's what happened. Through the rest of the career, you know, because we got famous so fast that it was that we didn't know each other that well. So you know, everybody sort of got on their own ego trip, and then we we got to a point where we thought the bar was not just figuring out how to play the songs we wrote. Uh, you know, in the best possible way they could be played, which takes a, it's a group effort when you're doing that, you know. And but when you get like a little bit of fame, somehow the ego, uh, you know, comes, and then you everybody is like, you know, sort of uh, trying to get everybody to play with, you know. There's a classic uh, in the Beatles uh, documentary, the Get It Back, is where George is Paul's talking to George and uh, and George. You know, that he can't please Paul. You know, he's one of Paul's tunes. And George says, and George says, look, I'll play anything you want. You know, right. I'll do anything you want me to do. And it's like, that's not what the Beatles did when they were first uh, happening, because they were playing those songs. They were all in total agreement about how you played those songs that 
they made famous in the beginning, you know, which they got better songwriters, you know, but what they had is that thing, that agreement, you know, to play those songs that they wrote better than anybody else could play them, you know, and I think that's what Moby Grape did in the beginning, you know, and then we got sort of like a little bit too famous too fast, and then, you know, everybody wants to be the... uh the most indispensable member, you know, like, in, and that's what we get on the second record. But I heard that going on with the Buffalo Springfield, too, which, who were our friends. You know, they were do- going through that, you know. And so, um, but anyway, this guy that was our manager, yes, yeah, so was the song was about him, you know, uh, being this guy that sort of like, uh, appeared was as an angel, sort of father figure. He had been the manager of the Jefferson Airplane. We we were not. I met this guy in L.A. You know, when I was playing with Joel Scott Hill, this other musician that was in playing clubs, doing cover tunes, and we were going to have a band that wrote tunes, wrote songs, and, and you know could play at, at venues like the Whiskey, or the Trip, which were better places than the place where I was playing. At Gazzari's, at that time, Gazzari's was kind of off the beaten path. You know, there was some, there was another band, Pat Lally Vegas was the other band that Gazzari played at Gazzari's, and, and mine, Peter and the Wolves. You know, actually, uh, you know, Pat Lally became Redbone, and they, did, and they had a hit, you know, with Come and Get Your Love. Right. People, I still hear people playing it, you know. It's on the music, Muzak, you know, you go in here and, Come and get your love, you know. And I think of Pat Lally in those days. We were, we were, we were playing at Gazzari's. You know, they do a set, and then Peter and the Wolves would do a set. But it was you doing cover tunes, and you, and you want to, uh, you know, get get, get you know, want to be part of the '60s, you know, especially with the groups out there that were like the Birds and the Lemon Spoon. All these songs at Jefferson Airplane too, you know, they were saying something about what was going on out in the world, you know, without not just entertaining people that were drinking, but, you know, really talking to an audience of, of people that were listening to them, you know, what they were saying. Well, you were you know. there, Moby Grape was there at a time when music really did change. I mean, when when I think about the major bands that came out of California when you did, I mean, other yeah. than, you know, the, the Grateful Dead obviously was, was big, Quicksilver Messenger Service, all these kinds of bands. One of the things that I found so interesting about Moby Grape, though, was you would look at a Moby Grape album, and just from the look of it, you sort of got an idea of what was inside. People talk about concept albums today and this and that, but it always seemed your early records were very cohesive, which for a group with that many songwriters must have been, that must have been very difficult to do. Yeah, but I don't think it was all preconceived. I think it just like it was um, wanting to be part of something that was happening already. You know, for us in the beginning, mm-hmm. because we went to the Fillmore and Avalon, saw the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane, and um, I don't. It was like just wanting to be a part of that. You know, I mean, and but to, how do you become a part of that? Well, you have to make yourself interesting enough as a person to get some attention. You know, I mean, that's what I saw them doing. You know, the Jefferson Airplane, you know, I mean, who are those guys that are up there doing that kind of thing? We're talking with you Peter know, Lewis here on downtown. You... Sort of serious about, and I think Moby Grape is an attempt to, of course, Skip had been in the airplane, 
And, um, you know, he, but he wasn't, you know, he didn't really fit with them because the airplane, all of those guys were kind of people that knew how to uh, achieve a common goal without making every every mistake that had ever been made by anybody else that had done this, that had gotten to where they wanted to get. I mean, they could, they, they figured out how to get there without, making every mistake everybody else ever made mm -hmm. trying to get where they got, you know, or get, or they were trying to get to, you know, like where they ended up, you know, not go through all the mistakes that were made to end up in this position where you, you got people listening to you and you, and they, you've, you know, cause it takes some, some amount of this whole thing to me involved putting myself at becoming part of the subculture, you know, which is not like, where I grew up, because I was the son of a movie star, so you know I got you know like it was a different it was a different reality. Yeah, what was that like for anybody who doesn't know? Your mom was the the wonderful actress Loretta Young. How old were you when you figured out that your childhood wasn't quite the same as everybody else's? As soon as I went to school, you know. <laughs> Before that, I thought everybody lived in the middle of Beverly Hills, you know. <laughs> servants in a pool and all that you know you, the kid doesn't know anything but what his experience of life is until he goes out in the world you know and then you and, when uh, you were in high school i think it was uh, you and uh, what well, some other sons of famous parents formed your first band of uh, the cornells yeah yeah there were a bunch of other movie stars kids that's what i'm saying you know you try to hang on to what you know as long as you can <laughs> you know and so that was, the Cornells was fun. And I learned how to play because we got jobs playing at high school dances and we get work, you know. We we were not, we weren't great. There were some other bands that were better, you know. Uh, the one of them in particular uh, was uh, this band called Heil Kang and the Newports. Heil was like a musical genius. He had these guys that were playing with him. And one of these guys was Henry Vestine who ended up being in Canned Heat. So I knew Henry, you know, like when I, we were in high school playing in these different bands at dances, and we, we knew each other. And, uh, you know, then after we, I think it was like I got reconnected with Henry through my wife. Who, <laughs> he was cheating on me with this guy. Me, see, the 60s was also about, you know, the freedom to just do what you feel like doing, you know, and right. letting somebody else do that, too. You know, freedom. That's what personal freedom meant in the 60s. Yeah. You uh, you, you played in Moby Grape so many iconic venues, the Monterey Pop Festival, uh, the Fillmore. But uh, I understand that one of your favorite, most memorable shows was one you did uh, at the Winterland Ballroom in 67, along with the Birds. Yeah. Well, the Birds, you know, of course, uh, you know, I mean, the Birds were, were like uh, the God complex for me. You know, they were telling the truth. You know, and doing it uh, in that way they did it, which to me just captured the whole thing, you know, from it made sense of what was going on between the Beatles and the time they showed up. They were like, uh, you know, the American Beatles to me. You know, I mean, they weren't doing just their own tunes, but, you know, when you hear that first lick of Mr. Tambourine Man, you know, sort of everything afterwards is gravy. You know, to me, the sound of the guitar. I mean, it, nobody. I hadn't heard that sound before, and I'm, I was like a guitar fanatic. You know, 
I love the sound of rock and roll guitar players, you know, like James Burton. And, uh, you know, him in particular was my favorite guitar player. And then McGuinn, you know. So when we play with the birds, it's like, it's a big deal for me. You know, and David Crosby came come into the dressing room. And it, that was one of the best nights we ever played. And after our set, David, he just came and opened our dressing room door, stuck his head in and said, wow, you know. <laughs> and it was just a huge hit for me. You, know, you mentioned McGuinn. And... Memory is one of those things. You know, you have these memories you have in life, you know. Some of them are good, some of them not so good. That was a good one. Well, you mentioned McGuinn. He was on with us not long ago, and I went down to see his solo show um, at, nearby. One of the things that struck me about it, something you just said is that when you hear that Rickenbacker hit a note, you know who it is. You almost always know it's McGuinn. There's something about, about the tone and the playing. Yeah, but she's. Yeah, I found out later, see, the only reason I got that the guitar to sound like that because the birds were signed with Columbia, and at Columbia, there was a, a union rule. The engineers could not push the faders up past zero dB. And that means, for everybody out there that does recording, will know what that means. It's like there's absolutely no distortion. Okay? Because of the, the fact that they, were, they had Johnny Mathis, Doris Day, they, the distortion was the, the you know, the uh, F word. Yeah. Them. You know, so they didn't push the faders up past zero db they were recording jack jones and people that were just that had to be heard in that sort of clear space columbia that could create with the studios the studios they had in la which were where all that stuff was recorded you know the studio d and studio a we we used studio d when we recorded but and terry melcher produced the birds okay so terry's father ran cbs at the time so Terry could turn the faders up as as much as he wants. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he doesn't care. He do it if the engineer doesn't do it. He, the engineer just goes sits on the in the other room, and Terry does it. You know, <laughs> and Terry was that kind of cat. We're he talking with that. Uh, I knew him. Talking with Peter Lewis, says new album is called Imagination. One of the songs I really love on the new album is called you Saying Goodbye. Go zero dB, because if you don't. It, what you get is a bunch of signal noise on the rest of the track. You have to saturate that track with guitar signal without making it distort. And that's what he did for McGuinn. I mean, they worked on it a long time before they got it to sound the way it did when you heard it mm. on their first uh, single, you know, that song, a Mr. Tambourine Man. But, I mean, they had they got that sound on his guitar. Nobody else could get that sound on their electric 12-string. Only McGuinn, because he, right. he got him and Terry figured out how to do it. You know, people go, oh, yeah, you got it. You know, it was almost it was very scientific for a cat like Terry, but I think he didn't, he he automatically knew that that's what you got to do to make the guitar sound big. The way it sounds is, is big, you know, like most guitars that you hear, uh, you know, do not sound as, uh, some sound bigger than others and the bigger ones are the ones that get the most attention but it's it's hard to get the guitar to sound big uh, it used to be you know because of the the, the they the, the, what you don't want on a vinyl record is that the signal 
that it creates or the vibration to knock the needle out of the groove. If you do that, you know, it's like the, the whole thing. I have to scrap the whole bunch of them and make another <laughs> master, you know, and press another issue, you know. So, but, but Terry knew how to get it right there or you didn't bounce out. And then you, but she sounded bigger than any other the guitar players. And, you know, like, there's a different way to do it. And that has to do with where, how far away you put the mic from the amplifier when you're trying to record the signal. You know, the farther away, the louder you can turn the, get the more signal, the more guitar you can get on the track, but that, then you have to record the guitar separately, you know, re-record it mm. after the track has been made. And that's a different kind of recording, you know. I wanted to ask you about uh, one of the... How, what, what, how great can we make this thing sound? Right. You know? I wanted to ask you about one of the songs on the new album that I, I like a lot called Saying Goodbye. I understand that's about uh, your first love, uh, Kristen Harmon, who later became Kristen Nelson. She was my wife. No, she didn't marry. I, I, she was my friend. Right. You know, my first girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, first, your first love, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, what did she say? Oh, the song. Yeah, saying and goodbye. The song was about like when she died. Mm, because you two had reconnected, right? Yeah, well, uh, you know, she married Rick Nelson, my hero, because I didn't. Because we broke up. Because she wouldn't put out, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how you were when you're a kid. The girl had the, it was, they were classic values going on when we were growing up. It was still like, it might as well have been the 1800s. <laughs> you know, women didn't sacrifice. Well, they did more than they ever did, used to. You know, I mean, and nowadays, you know, you like shaking hands. You know? <laughs> but, but, and that, when I met her, it wasn't like that yet. So anyway, you know, we did this little dance. I'd bring my guitar over there and put it up in her basement and play, play her stuff I'd figured out. And she'd sit there and listen to it, and look at me with those dreamy blue eyes, you know, and that big smile on her face. I mean, you know, you would love her. She was beautiful, you know. So, But she married Rick Nelson. The guy, another it's a funny story about Rick, man. There was a guy in our band, this guy Jim O'Keefe, who played sax in the Cornells, right? And he liked Chris too, and he was way better looking than me. <laughs> and he so and he had a car, and I didn't. So he he got he took her out in his car, and then they came back. She said she had a headache and made him take her home. And then uh, you know, so he, she goes in and says good night. And then Chris lived with her mom and dad and her siblings and her grandmother, her mother, her dad's, I think, no, her mother's mother lived with them. And, and the grandma got Jim in there and gave him some cookies, and he was eating some cookies in the kitchen with the grandma. And then here comes Chris walking down the stairs with Rick. He was waiting for her in, in her bedroom, you know, like when Jim brought her home. Because she said she had a headache. And that's his memory of, of Chris. He, did, he never, he was always mad at her, you know. But I ran into her again at some point, you know. And uh, after she, the, you know, the divorce and everything, and I saw her, her boys, the, the twins. Yeah, Gunner and Matthew. At yeah. the party for, it was called 
Musicians as Artists. And, and I got in this book called Musicians as Artists because Mike Clark got me in there because I played with them. At one point, I played with Mike. And I sang him because I was going to school. You, I, after Moby Grape, I went back and got a degree in studio art because I became interested in painting, you know. And so I, I did this painting of Michael called One Bird in the Garden. And it was this <laughs> uh, kind of beautiful, you know, little uh, expressionist piece or something. And, and it was this little bird. like a, My son made the bluebird by just, after I got the rest of it done, my son was like two at the time, and he wanted to learn how to paint. He's like, dude, well, just paint. You know, I was just fooling around with this picture. You know, and he stuck the paintbrush in this uh, bunch of blue and in some white, I think, and just stuck it on the paper and took the paper away, and it was a little blue, it was a little bluebird. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and that was, I gave it to Michael after I played with them, because I said, this is yours, man, because I realized that it fit, you know, it fit him, you know, one bird in the garden, because he was calling this band the birds, but they weren't the birds, it was him and with these other guys, and he called me and said, well, you come down and, and play with me in Santa Barbara, and I did, and uh, I, I must say it was strange, <laughs> Not bad. I mean, Michael got in trouble for doing that and then Crosby and them or he had been doing that but he didn't stop I mean they were like at each other trying to make a living Michael you know the birds or the rest of the birds weren't having a problem with that you know they had money right right uh, the new album from Peter Lewis is called Imagination it's a great to have new music from you Peter I love it uh, it's officially available on June 12th but uh, out there on some streaming services already uh, Peter it's been great talk with you thank you so much for making time for us well you're welcome man thank you for having me that's Peter Lewis talking about the Moby Grape days and his brand new album Imagination here on downtown our thanks to Peter Thanks to T.G. Shepard and, of course, to you for visiting with us. Downtown is produced every week by Carrie Haskell and brought to you by Renewal by Anderson, the better way to a better window. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown.